Good morning again, Grace. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 8. We have been going through our series entitled Men at Work, systematically walking through the uh, book of Mark. We have been doing it for quite some time. We'll be taking that all the way into Memorial Day weekend. So right now we are in the, the turning point of the entire book. Actually, this is the, the pivot on which the book sets, where it moves and transitions. As you see, even with our little signposts up here, we have chapters 1 through 8, the servant who rules, and then we go through into 8 through 16 in the ruler who serves. So we are transitioning in the book of Mark. This is the turning point. Now, it's interesting to me, as we see this, this turning point that happens within this book, it made me stop and think about turning points in our lives. We all have turning points. There are moments in our lives that shape and direct us to pursue the Lord or direct other people to even turn away from God. Well, we stand at the crossroads of life. I'm reminded of a, a turning point of a young man who was 17 years old. He was um, the sixth of nine children. He was born in poverty, was raised in obscurity. And like uh, all young men that grow up in a large family that want to, I mean, he's 17 years old, he's living out in the country, he wants to experience life. So he moves to the city to make money as a very young man. He was 17 years old, and he got a job as a shoe salesman. Matter of fact, he was a very good shoe salesman. Within three months' time, he worked his way up to be the top salesman in that, that, uh, that business, that shoe company. And he, he, though, had a conviction and inkling about who God was. He'd gone to church as a young man, so he still was going to church, but he wasn't yet saved. You know you can go to church and not be saved. You know that, right? And he had gone to church, and he had a conviction and understanding of sin, but he never wept over his sin. He'd even attended a Sunday school class when his teacher became so impressed upon, by the Spirit of God to go and talk to this young man at his shoe store, his place of business. So he, the, the, the teacher prepares himself, the teacher walks in, and then he goes up to the young man, puts his hand on his shoulder, and starts telling him about God's love for him. And the man starts to, the Sunday school teacher is so just caught up and has so much love for this young man that he starts to cry over this young man's sins. And it ended up being a turning point for this young man that he looked back years later and he said, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he talked about God's love. And I, he wept over my sins and it really struck me because it was the first time in my life that I had ever had someone speak to me about my sins. I had never wept over my sins, but yet this man was weeping over my sins. And he couldn't believe it. And he was overwhelmed by the love of God. And he received Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And his, his total life turned dramatically at that moment in time. Now, many of you have probably heard of that young man. His name was Deal Moody. And today is his birthday. He would have been 175 years old today. And this man, though, not only was it a turning point in his life, his life became the means by which other people's lives were transformed. It became turning points for several other people's lives because God used that man to speak in his lifetime. He died in 1899. And it, so you're talking about pre-telephone, pre-automobile, pre-cell phones. In his lifetime, he spoke to over 100 million people. That's incredible. And I'm thankful for him because if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for his Sunday school teacher who was named Edward Kimball, then 
I may not be in the ministry that I'm at today because I ended up going to the school that ended up being named after him, that he helped found. And then my life was transformed as I was learning about the Word of God. I met my future wife there. I met some of the, the friends that I have that, that are serving in different ministries all over the world. And, and I got my, learned about who Jesus was and how to study the Word of God and what it really meant to pray and be in such a great fellowship. And it was all because of one man, a Sunday school teacher, that went and spoke to that young man. We all have turning points in our lives. Think about the turning points in your own. Who spoke to you? Or what happened in your life? Sometimes it's someone speaking to us, and sometimes it's certain situations. I think about a relative of mine who totally was, ra- was raised in church, but totally rebelled in the teen years, like so many do. And I remember the day that I came home, and I was listening to her tell her father with another woman in the room that she had become a lesbian. She left the faith and her father was stunned. He didn't know what to do. But we continued to pray for her. We pray for her. And I'm not very close to this relative, but I'd hear through different family members and I heard that she ended up leaving that relationship after two years. Next thing I know, she's with some guy. And then next thing I know that she's pregnant and then she decides to get married. And I thought, how much worse can this get? But then I hear a story about her being in church, and I'm surprised. She's going to church. Then I hear she's an Awana leader, and I I hear she's in the praise team, and I hear that all this transformation that has occurred in her life, and I, I finally got the opportunity to sit down with her, and I said, what was the turning point in your life? And she said, the moment that my son was born, I realized that I was no longer damning myself but him, and that I was living a life in rebellion to the Lord, and that I had to repent and turn back to him. And that birth birth of her son ended up being a turning point in her life. Now, it's amazing. God has a way of getting our attention. He uses the sufferings and the tragedies and the troubles and the tribulations in our life to get our attention. He uses the sicknesses and the struggles that we have and the situations in which we find ourselves to really wake us up. You know, many of us, we live in a very culturally comfortable world, do we not? Our creaturely comforts keep us from Christ all too often. But see, God uses pain as a megaphone to us to rouse us up, to wake us up. Now we see a situation, we're going to look at two episodes today involving two turning points. We're going to see the episode of Jesus with the blind man and how his life is transformed. And we're going to see an episode with Jesus and the disciples and how they come to a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is and their turning points. So this is, like I said before, the pivot, the hinge upon which this book turns, where there's a transition between the servant who rules and the ruler who serves. So we're going to see really who Jesus is, and and hopefully it will be a turning point for each one of our lives. Because we know that we need a touch from God. We need Him to speak to our lives, into our situations, because we want to walk closer with Him, don't we? We want to be more obedient. We want to experience more of God in our life. We want to sacrifice more. We want to know our Savior, to know Him and to make Him known, right? That's what we want to do. We want to know Jesus. We want to walk closer with Him in newness of life. So hopefully, if you haven't turned with me already, turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to be walking from verses 22 to verses 33. And just pay attention to the details as we walk through this in these two episodes of Turning Points. 
Now, for those that have been around for some time, I'm not going to sing the Jeremiah, David Jeremiah song. How many of you already had that song in your head? This will be your turning point. This will be. Okay, never mind. So we're in Mark chapter 8, and hopefully this will be a turning point in all of our lives. So please stand with me. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church, Grace Campus, to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence today asking you to transform our lives. Let this be a turning point for us. Whether, whether it's someone here, Lord, that has not yet received you as Lord and Savior of their life, or it's someone that is waiting to completely surrender themselves for service. Lord, I pray that this might be a turning point. May you receive glory, and may you receive all honor and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's, let's walk through this. The first episode that we're going to see as we see this turning point that's involving, the, the first turning point involves... The miracle of a blind man. That's your first point, the first point that I have for you in your notes. It's the miracle of a blind man. Now, this blind man is a little different than some of the other blind men that Jesus interacted with. And it's also, the healing is a little bit different than some of the healings that Jesus has done. If you capture the details, Jesus does something quite strange. He spits in the guy's eyes. Now, Jesus does this again. We see this done in John chapter 7, except it's a little different than he spits in the mud... And then he, he spits in the dirt, makes mud out of it, and then he reshapes this guy's eyes. Now, it's fascinating there because Jesus, we learn in the book of Colossians, that everything is made through him and by him and for him. So, in essence, he made man. And what does he use to remake man's eyes? The very thing that he used to create man in the first place. Uh, the dirt. Now, that's in John 7. So this is a little different. This man wasn't born blind. We can see, and we're going to see within the text, that he became blind. But we come upon this scene in a very startling and interesting way. Look at verse 22 with me. And they came to Bethsaida. So it's Jesus and the disciples. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now what we can see, though, in this turning point is that God uses us to help be a turning point in other people's lives. It's pretty amazing to think about. So here's the first point here. Interceding for others is significant. That's the thing, that little letter A in your notes. Write that down. Interceding for others is significant. Now, can we take people physically to Jesus today? No. Physically, not physically, we can't. So what do we do? 
We bring him in prayer. Interceding for other people in prayer. You see, it's fascinating that they bring their loved one to Jesus, and then they beg him. The word implored. It's this understanding of being a legal advocate for. They didn't have to do this, but they cared for their friend so much that they said, hey, we've heard about Jesus. We've heard that he can transform lives. We just heard that he can, he can give you sight. In some ways, it looks like their faith was greater than their friend's. So they, they, they intercede for him. Now, God wants us to be interceding for our loved ones. How many of you have a family member in rebellion and turn their back on God? If you don't, then you're lying. Because everyone I know, everyone in this room has a family member. It could be a son, could be a daughter, could be a parent, could be an aunt, an uncle, could be a coworker, could be a colleague, classmate. We all know someone that has turned their back on God. And the only way that someone's going to get their attention is, and the only person is God. And that's God's in the business of transforming lives. See, I'm reminded of the story of Jim Cimbala. Anybody ever heard of Jim Cimbala? Jim Cimbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in Brooklyn, New York. Started this church. I mean, it was as bad as bad can be. But he believed God, had a focus on prayer, and God started to transform and really grow that place. But just like all of us, he's not, he wasn't exempt from Satan attacking his family. And Satan went after his daughter, Chrissy. Big time. She totally turned her back on God, and he kept pleading to God for her, just getting on his knees, crying out to God. And it got so bad that he went on a vacation to Florida. His daughter was with him. She, he just counseled her, please talk to this pastor friend of mine. If you don't talk to me, please talk to him. So she talked to him, and then he talked to his pastor friend, and he goes, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. Chrissy's going to want to do what she wants to do. She's 18 years old. She's, gonna, she's bound to determine to do whatever she wants to do. And it really depressed Cymbala. And he said, but I wasn't going to give up. I was going to continue praying for her. So he goes back to Brooklyn and he continues to pray for his daughter in deep intercessory prayer. And he, he says this, and I want to read this to you, this account of what happened. He says this, back home in New York, I began to pray with an intensity and growing faith as never before. Whatever bad news I would receive about Chrissy, I kept interceding and actually praising God for what I knew he would do soon. I made no attempts to see her. Carol and I endured the Christmas season with real sadness. Carol's his wife. I was pathetic, sitting around trying to open presents with our other two children without Chrissy. February came. One cold Tuesday night during the prayer meeting, which is a big, huge deal with the Brooklyn Tabernacle. One cold Tuesday night during the prayer meeting, I talked from Acts chapter 4 about the church boldly calling on God in the face of persecution. We entered into a time of prayer, everyone reaching out to the Lord simultaneously. An usher handed me a note. A young woman whom I felt to be spiritually sensitive had written, Pastor Simbola, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and all pray for your daughter. I hesitated. Was it right to change the, the flow of the service and focus on my personal need? Yet something in the notes seemed to ring true. In a few minutes, I picked up the microphone and told the congregation what had just happened. The truth of the matter, I said, although I haven't talked much about it, is that my daughter is very far, very far from God these days. She thinks up is down and down is up, dark is light and light is dark. But I know God can break through to her. And so I'm going to ask Pastor Bookstaff to lead us in praying for Chrissy. Let's all join hands across the sanctuary. As my associate began to lead the people, I stood behind him with my hand on his back. My tear ducts had run dry, but I prayed as I best I knew. To describe what happened in the next few minutes, I can only employ a metaphor. He says the church turned into a labor room. 
The sounds of woman giving birth are not pleasant, but the results are wonderful. Paul knew this when he wrote, My dear children, whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4.19 There arose a groaning, a sense of desperate determination, as if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. Take your hands off her. She's coming back. I was overwhelmed. The force of that vast throng, throng calling on God almost literally knocked me over. When I got home that night, Carol was waiting up for me. We sat at the kitchen table drinking coffee, and I said, it's over. What's over? She wondered. It's over with Chrissy. You would have, to be, have had to be in that prayer meeting tonight. I tell you, if there's a God in heaven, this whole nightmare is finally over. I described what had taken place. 32 hours later, on Thursday morning, as I was shaving, Carol suddenly burst through the door, her eyes wide open. Go downstairs, she blurted. Chrissy's here. Chrissy's here? Yes, go down. But Carol, I, just go down. She wants to see you. I wiped off the shaving foam and headed downstairs, my heart pounding. As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. Cautiously, I spoke her name. Chrissy? She grabbed my pant leg and began pouring out her anguish. Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against self and myself. I've sinned against you and Mommy. Please forgive me. My vision was as clouded by tears as hers. I pulled her up from the floor and held her close as we cried together. Suddenly she drew back. Drew back. Daddy, she said with a start, who is praying for me? Who is praying for me? Her voice was like that of a cross-examining attorney. What do you mean, Chrissy? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything, so she continued. In the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me I was heading toward this abyss. There was no bottom to it, and it scared me to death. I was so frightened, I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept from sliding any farther, far, farther and he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who was praying for me Tuesday night? Transformation had occurred. Because that's how God works in transforming life. Praise the Lord. So, make sure that we make sure we could. We do want to. We. We do want to pray for those rebellious family members. So, it's amazing though the transformation that occurred in her life because she became, she went on to Bible school that fall. And then she, God used her, she, I mean, to transform other people's lives. She became a songwriter herself. She ended up marrying a pastor, and now she is serving with him at Chicago Tabernacle in the city. See, God is in the business of changing lives, and we have to see that interceding for other people is significant. Are you assaulting heaven for your loved ones, for your children, for your parent, for your loved one, for your husband, for your wife? God wants us to be interceding for others for his name. So we can see there that Interceding for others is significant. Now notice, look what he does though. This is one of the very few miracles that Christ doesn't heal him immediately. Look within the text. He took the blind man by the hand, we're in verse 23, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? 
And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So we understand here, he, he recognized what men look like, so we can see then he wasn't born blind. The blindness had occurred periodically over time. So he had an understanding of what had happened. It could have been periodically, it could have been an accident, we don't know. So Jesus doesn't heal him immediately. Now why? Why? Could he? Could he have healed him immediately? Of course he could. He does that, he does that so often. Then why, though, does he wait this time? Why does he do this in stages? Well, I think God wants us to understand that healing happens in stages for some of us. Write that down. Healing happens in stages. For some of us, when we came to know Jesus, it was dark, and then it was light. For others of us, it was a little bit more gradual. It's a dimmer switch. We've talked about that so many times. But there's a point in time when the light gets on. And that we recognize, we can spiritually see. See, healing happens in stages. God works uniquely in different people's lives in pretty profound ways. But he happens in stages. Now, the coolest thing about this entire passage is this is sandwiched right between Jesus interacting with the disciples beforehand and them failing to recognize and understand who he was and then him interacting with them afterwards and they still fail to understand who he is. The whole point, and it's mentioned, I think, nine times within the preceding section, this section, and the one directly following it, is their failure to see and grasp who he is. See, God wants us to understand that it's not going to be immediate for some of us, that we have to be patient with one another, and that God is working slowly, but he's working in our lives. And some of us, we get really down and depressed. God, why don't you take this sin from my life? We hear about that happen with other people. Have you ever heard that? Someone just said, I just quit sinning immediately on this certain sin. And some of us are looking around going, why am I struggling so much? I'm still struggling with the same sins that I struggled with when I first got saved. You ever been like that? You ever felt that in your life? When you see some people where it's immediate for them and there's others that you're sitting there going, why am I still struggling? God's not left you. God's working with you. And he's being patient with you. And he's trying to show you his grace. And he wants to free you from that sin. So we have to understand that the turning point in a person's life doesn't always happen instantaneously. Sometimes it's gradual change. So we have then interceding for others is significant. We have healing happens in stages. And then we have something very curious. Jesus lays his hands on him in verse 25. Look at that. On his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. But then the most curious part I mean, the whole episode is very strange and peculiar, but verse 26 is very strange to me. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Why didn't he go to the village? Why did he have him, have him not go and tell everybody what he did? Walk around and go, look! <laughs> I can look! <laughs> I can see! Why would Jesus not have him go to the village, not go to home? Now, keep that in mind. Look, skip down. In the, other, the next episode, now we're, gonna, we're not going to completely get into this one just yet, but I'd like you to see in verse 29, Jesus asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Look at verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This goes against everything we know, is it? does it not? The Great Commission were to do what? Go and tell who? Everybody. Then why is he not having him tell everybody right now? Why does he say... Not to do this. We don't know. We're not given that instance. But we know that he has a reason for it. Does God have a reason for stuff happening in our life? Yeah. Do we always see that reason? No. No. So here's, here's the point. Obeying doesn't always make sense. 
Does God give you a command and expect you to obey it? Yes. Does he expect you to understand everything about it? No. I think of Abraham with Isaac. Here is the son of promise, the one through whom all the world would be blessed, the one that he had waited for, the one that he had been praying for for decades. And yet, here's this son, and what does God call him to do? Sacrifice him. What? I mean, that's a strange command, is it not? But does Abraham obey? Yes. Because he believed God. He trusted in the Lord. See, God doesn't want us to walk by faith. I mean, by sight. He wants us to walk by faith. But we want to walk by sight all the time. We want, we're just like my, my children. My children, I tell my children, and you've probably done this, obey. What's the first question? <laughs> wow. You know, a lot doesn't change when you become between 9 and 69, by the way. Adults still ask the same question, why? We don't change a whole lot. We're always asking God, why? And God just says, what? Trust me. Trust me. I have reasons that you don't understand. I have reasons that you don't understand. And just like us trying to explain to our children, sometimes we can't explain it fully, but we know what's best. Do we not? And do you think our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us? When He calls us to obey there's a reason here. We don't understand it. There were times where, where Jesus tells them not to go into a certain town, even the book of Acts. We have them ready to go on a certain mission trip, and the Spirit of Jesus forbids them from going in. He had a reason. We don't understand it. We're not given the reason why. God doesn't choose to reveal all of His secret plans to us. They're His prerogative. They're His understanding. But we are called not to understand everything, but to trust in Him and walk by faith. It could have been that, this, the, that him going in there and telling everybody about the miracle would have messed up the entire ministry. That all these people would have come out looking for that healer rather than a savior. People wanted the sideshow and not their sins forgiven. See, he didn't want that. That's not what he was about. Jesus wasn't desirous to attract and have everybody come and see a show. Matter of fact, we've seen throughout the book of Mark, that is the last thing that Jesus wants. Even after miracles are done, he retreats and prays, and they come up and they say, hey, everybody's looking for you. And what does Jesus say? We need to go to the next town. Why? Because they were too busy, obsessed with the miraculous. This is why people show up on underneath subways to see pictures of Jesus, because people are obsessed with it. They want to go where the miraculous is. They don't understand that... Jesus is a miracle maker, but he wants us to understand his message. And that he's, the greatest miracle is that he would forgive sins, that he would identify with us and transform us and come into us through the Spirit of God. It's one of the greatest miracles. Not to say that he's not in the business of doing miracles, but he's not interested in attracting a sideshow for those who are only attracted to the miraculous. So we see this turning point. That's the three things that it involved for this man. He, he ended up seeing, and then he could see all things clearly. Clearly. Okay, now we have that first episode down. Let's look at this second episode. The second episode moves along, and we see Jesus with his disciples. So let's look at that passage once again. Jesus went on with his disciples, verse 27, to the villages, uh, villages of Caesarea Philippi. It's an area, a certain area, geographical area. The villages kind of come together to form uh, Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, as it was a common rabbinic custom to ask by questions, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others, said, others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. 
And he asked him, but who do you say I am? Now, Peter answered him. I love Peter. Is there anybody that you can identify with more than Peter? Because Peter suffers from the same disease I have. It's called foot and mouth disease. Anybody else have that disease? You all say, you, you say something stupid a lot of the time. And Peter, Peter's, I love Peter, though, because he's bold one minute and he's dumb the next. And it's just like us. We're bold in our proclamation, and then we do something stupid. And he does that. <laughs> That's what I love about him. He's so, you can identify with the man so much. And he, he's the one that speaks up for the disciples. You are the Christ. I mean, he is given, he's given the message. This message is from this bold guy. That's the, the point here. This is the second episode. It involves the message of a bold man. So we had the miracle of a blind man. Now we have the message of a bold man. And, and Peter is speaking up about Jesus being the Christ. That he is identifying who Jesus truly is. Now I want us to see here that this, this message or this, this uh, message that he's given isn't based on others' theories. Others' theories. Now look at this. Look back at the text again. And they told him, or actually in verse... 27, who do people say that I am? Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And they give three answers. The first answer is John the Baptist. Now, this had been perpetuated by Herod himself, because remember, Herod had John the Baptist uh, beheaded, and his conscience was haunting him. He thought John was so holy that he came back from the dead to haunt him through Jesus. And this rumor had gone around among people. It's John the Baptist. That's why powers are at work in him. Others say Elijah. Now, in Jewish uh, custom or in Jewish theology, the book of Malachi talks about the Elijah who is to come that would be the one who would proclaim the way of the Lord, that would set all things straight, that would turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. Now, Jesus tells us that Elijah was, come on, Bible students, John the Baptist, you're exactly right. He says that he's John the Baptist. Now, John denied it because John really didn't understand. Christ saw the complete fulfillment of it, and he says he was John the Baptist. Others say, what? We have, so far, we have three answers. We have John the Baptist, we have Elijah, and then one of the prophets. Prophetes, plural. The understanding there is uh, that Jesus is someone like Moses. See, Moses had prophesied at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that a prophet would come that would be like him. That would be different. Moses was known as the meekest man to ever walk the face of the earth. And he did many different miracles. One of which was producing, in their minds, manna coming from heaven. So the Israelites are wandering in the desert place and God supplies bread miraculously. Who just had supplied bread miraculously to a group of thousands? Jesus. So these people are like, hey, this is like Moses. This is like Moses. And, and so they're listening to all these other people's testimonies about who Jesus is. You know, I've had a lot of people over time. Actually, this past week, I interacted with two different individuals. Both are in complete rebellion to the Lord. I had a dinner yesterday with one of them, and I've just gotten to know him, trying to witness to him, he has many different questions about Christianity. And, and I had one at the beginning of the week with a young man who's in complete, complete rebellion. He has left the faith. He has pursued just a life totally uh, away from God. And he is broken. He is empty. He feels horrible in his life. And I sat down and I just listened to him very briefly. And I, I said, how did you get there? 
And he said, you know, and he started talking about all the books that he'd been reading, and he was listening to what all these other people said about Jesus. He was reading very liberal scholars and, and big-time atheist thinkers, and, and then he was surrounding himself and listening to these people that were in complete rebellion with the Lord themselves. Now, when you continue to hang out with people that are against God, you're going to turn, it's going to affect you. That's why Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. So the company that we have can affect our behavior. Big time. Young people, especially, you want to hang out with the wrong person, they're going to bring you down. And when it's all said and done, you're going to be the one left holding the bag, and the only person that's going to be suffering is you. Choose your friends wisely. And I'm not saying that to beat you over the head. I'm saying that in a company of older peoples that will excellent, I know, will testify to the same thing. Why? Because we've experienced it. We know how a bad person can bring and affect us. Do we not? Can I get an amen from the people? It's true. It's totally true. So we have to be very careful in the friends that we keep. And now, and these other people are going to tell us who they think Jesus is. They're going to say, oh, he was just a great teacher. You're going to hear that. For those who are going off to college, I guarantee that's what your professor is going to say because he's trying to shock you. He's going to try to stand up and bring you down. And everybody around is going to be nodding their head, taking in what this idiot professor says. And trust me, I've been in grad school. Professors are, can be really dumb. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I've seen PhDs that don't have, they have less sense than a kid in kindergarten PE. I'm serious. I, I mean, I'm not saying all professors are idiots, but some professors, they, they become fools. They can become fools. I've known some very godly individuals that are in the universities that God has used, but don't think that your faith's not going to be attacked, and they're going to give testimony who they think Jesus is. They're going to give all these different theories. Jesus was just a man. Jesus was just a great teacher like Buddha. He was just like, like Muhammad. They're going to say all these different things. And, I, and this young man was telling me across from me, and he's asking me all these questions, and I keep coming back to it. And I was studying this passage, and I said, Jesus asked you the question. He doesn't ask that professor because you know what? At the end of the day, you can't hide behind the person with initials behind their name and a title in front of it. Jesus asked you the question, who do you say I am? That's what he does. And I talked to this older man. He had all these questions, very intellectual man. He's a, he's a professor himself. And we're going back and forth. And he'd ask a question, and then I would give an answer. And before I'd even finished giving the answer, he'd go on to the next question. And I realized in the middle of it that he didn't care about the answer. All he wanted to do was find a reason to justify his sin. At the end of our conversation, he finally said it. And we were talking about what is the proper motivation for following the Lord, love or fear. And I said, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. And he said, you know what my greatest fear is? Is that I can't be me. And I said, now nah, we've reached the point. Because what your fear is, you're afraid to give up your sin because you love it too much. And you're hiding behind all these other theories. But Jesus stands in front of you, and he's not asking you to be a Republican or a Democrat. He's not asking you to embrace a subculture. He's not asking you to follow all these things that you've heard all your entire life. He's asking you, who do you say that I am? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. And that's what God asks each one of us. Who do you say that I am? He asked it to the, the group of individuals. They're, he's asking them as a group. But then Peter responds 
See, it comes into his own testimony. See, it's not about others' theories. It's about our own testimony. Write that down. It's about what Jesus has done in your life. What has Jesus done in your life? What do you say about Jesus? Can you say you are the Christ, the one true Son of God? It's not about what John MacArthur says or John Piper or Billy Graham. I don't care because at the end of the day, they're not going to ask you, what did Billy Graham say about me? They're going to ask you and point at you and say, Scott Brown, what does, who do you say that I am? Or David Wood, who do you say that I am? Lloyd Daniels, who do you say that I am? Chuck Gillette, who do you say that I am? That's what he's going to say to you at the end of time. Who do you say that I am? And now that you've acknowledged Jesus with your lips, are you following him with your life? So it's not about others' theories. It's about our own testimony. You can't get into heaven on the faith of someone else. You might have a grandparent that loves Jesus, but that's not going to save you. Being an elder in a church isn't going to save you. There are church members that don't know Jesus. I guarantee it. (laughs) Just because you're in a church doesn't make you a Christian anymore. Being in Burger King makes you a, a burger. Don't think that's going to save you. Jesus says to you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? That's the question before us today. This is the turning point. For some of us, that means turning to him for salvation. For others, that means turning to him in greater intimacy. Because we've rebelled. We're backslidden in our hearts and in our minds. But notice, though, let's, let's continue on. That's not done yet, because even though Peter testifies that Jesus is the Christ, Peter doesn't quite get it yet. Remember, it's about seeing, and they still don't see it. They don't get it. See, we must, we must remember that our testimony is not just based on the truth of who Jesus is. It is built upon the plans of God. Notice the plan that God lays out here in verse 31. Look at verse 31 with me. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now there's a reason why Mark says that he did this plainly. It's because Jesus had a tendency to talk in metaphor. And the disciples didn't get it three quarters of the time. Remember when Jesus starts talking about just a few verses or sections before when he starts talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? What did the disciples think he was talking about? Oh, it's because we don't have bread. Jesus is like, what? It's not about bread. It's about the teaching that they, they do. So here, he's saying it plainly. He is laying out what's going to happen. Now, this goes and flies in the face of everything that they knew. See, Jesus talks about four things. You can write this down. It's not in your notes, but I want you to write this down. First of all, it involves a determined son. Jesus is determined. He says, teach the Son of God must suffer many different things. And then when Peter pulls him aside to rebuke him, Jesus doesn't play around. He doesn't say, well, that's one view. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. So he, he understood. That it was, he was determined. He was a determined son, the Son of Man. That's why we say he's the man at work, bringing about our salvation, paving the pathway for us to get to God, clearing and blazing a trail for us to follow. Just like when it really snows. You ever been on the road when it's been really snowing? And you see that big rig in front of you? You stay right in those tire treads. See, Jesus is blazing the way that we stay right behind that course that he's already 
blaze for us. And we follow him. So it's a determined son. And he talks about something pretty bad here. He says that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So so we have a a determined son, and then we have some deplorable suffering that he's going to go through. Deplorable suffering. You can write that down. He's going to suffer, and he's going to suffer bad. And it has to be that way. He has to suffer to identify with us. That's one of the questions that I was meeting with this older man yesterday. He had the question we were to talk about, and he has a litany of very, very involved questions that don't have yes or no answers. And the first one is the old standard is why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I said, before we even get started, I said, I can't take your question face value without asking the other side of that question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why? Ultimately, we're not going to know. We don't know why God sometimes blesses those that are unrighteous. Job talks about that. He talks about that. He didn't understand. But we see Him blessing, and we see Him also blessing us in a different way. See, God brings suffering into our lives to show Himself. See, when we suffer, we're showing if Jesus is very real. See, it's easy to follow Jesus when the crowd's great, the budget's full, everything's in black, and everybody's shouting and singing. It's easy. It's really hard when times are tough and you get the cancer diagnosis. The account's bad. Family's in rebellion. Our marriage is a sham. Those are the difficult times. But see, it's in the moments like that that God wants to get our attention, to magnify his name. That's why James said, consider it pure joy when you face happiness, trials. How many of you ever said that when times got tough? (laughs) You just laugh and say, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy because that's what God is doing. He's saying, I'm doing something in you that you cannot imagine. So we have this determined son, we have deplorable suffering, and then Jesus says something that is shocking to the disciples. He says that he is going to be killed. So he's going to be rejected, first of all. That was unfathomable to them because the crowds were all around him shouting his name. But he's rejected by everybody. He's rejected by his friends. He's rejected by his family. He's rejected by the faithful, the faithless. And last of all, he's rejected by the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, that's one of the the greatest mysteries in all of Scripture. How God could turn, God the Father could turn his back on God the Son as the Son of God became sin at that moment in time. Paul talks about that. For for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. So we have this determined son, this deplorable suffering, and this also deadly sentence. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. But then Jesus says something that I made their, their eyebrows raise. What? Look. Look at the text. And after three days, we'll do what? Rise again. And I love the next section. And he said this plainly. He laid it out. This is the plan. It's the plan of God. He said it plainly, and it's a definite surprise to them. 
It's a definite surprise. The resurrection, they didn't understand that. No one had ever raised themselves from the dead. I mean, they'd heard about Elijah, they'd heard about Elisha, and they'd even seen some of the stuff that Jesus had done in bringing people back from the dead. But no one had said they were going to die and then come back. And now, this really, really messed with their heads because they were expecting a military leader like David to come and just rid and run out the dreaded Romans. They wanted to establish the theocracy again, just Jewish rule, and they would expand the territories and the borders, and they'd just get rid of the hated Romans. They'd be able to worship God again. That's why Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, you've got to have some serious chutzpah to rebuke Jesus. There's people in my life that I would have a hard time rebuking, and I mean, I can honestly say I would never dream of rebuking Jesus. And Peter rebukes him. But see, the plan, it's built on the plans of God, not the prerogatives of man. Write that down, the prerogatives of man. That's the next, next part in your notes there, the prerogatives of man. See, man wants salvation without suffering. We want that, do we not? We want our best life now. That's why that book sells so much. I, I'm just being very frank. People don't want to suffer. We don't like to suffer. And I've heard pastors stand up, and they even talk about not suffering. And I'll tell you right now, that is not biblical at all, in the least. The Bible talks about through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Endure suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul talks about it again and again, and he lays it out, all of the suffering that he went through. He talks about being shipwrecked. He talks about being stoned. He talks about being, receiving 40 lashes minus one. He talks about being in danger from his countrymen, danger in the city, danger on the road. He's shipwrecked. He's going through all these troubles, and he still says, and I have in my body the daily anxiety for all the churches because he sees the sin that's just going in him all the time. He sees suffering. Salvation involves suffering, and it's Jesus' suffering most of all. But we are going to suffer. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. All who seek to be godly in Christ will be persecuted. You're going to suffer at your workplace. You're going to suffer at your family get-togethers. You're going to suffer with your friends because they're not going to understand. Because remember, Paul said, we are the aroma of Christ to those are perishing, I mean, to those that are being saved, it is the smell of life. And to those that are being damned, it's the smell of death. You ever been around death? Smelling a corpse? You ever had a dead animal die in your yard and you're just walking around you're like, something stinks. What is that? See, that's how you smell to some people. Because they're not being saved. They don't like that smell. They want to get you away from them. But for others, it's a smell of life. And those are the people that are going to be attracted to you and want to know who Jesus is. And they're going to ask you questions and they want to see and know who he is. So God's God's plans. We have to understand that this message that Peter has, it's based on the, the plans of God, not the prerogatives of man. And he messed that up. And that's what Satan tries to do. When, when Satan was, was tempting Jesus initially, he tried to do things to get Jesus from being able to identify with us. And even then, he was trying through Peter somehow. We don't know how that worked. We don't, he didn't possess Peter. We don't know how he influenced Peter. But somehow, Jesus recognized the, the root of this lie. And he says, what you're offering is a satanic thing, because you're saying that we can have salvation without suffering, and that's not how the Father has ordained it. I have to die that's why we preach Christ crucified. We're not here to offering a better plan for your life. We always want to do that. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block 
to many different people. Foolishness to those that are being saved. But we cling to the cross of Christ. See, that's why we have a, a, we see here there's a crucifixion that's going to happen, and then there's a definite resurrection that's going to occur. And with, you can't proclaim Christ without understanding that. That there was a crucifixion that they died. He died for your sins and mine. He, that's what your sins deserve. You can't remove the offense of the cross. When I hear churches that don't even talk about the blood of Christ anymore, you're, you're missing the gospel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, as we read in the book of Leviticus. We have to get back and understand that it's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where everything happens and occurs. That's where we see what man's rebellion deserves. Our sins deserve that. We don't think we're that bad, which shows that we're even worse than we originally thought. If you think that your sins aren't that bad, then I, I, I hurt for you. Because we have a tendency to misunderstand. And we totally gloss over our sin. And God doesn't. I was reading in my devotionals this past week of the Psalms. It was in Psalm 50. Here, look at that. Actually, I'm going to have you turn with me. Turn with me to Psalm 50. I know I'm, we're moving into communion here. I'm almost done. But I think God has something for us. Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verse 19. You give your mouth free reign for evil. You do that? Sometimes I do. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your own brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. How often do we think that God is like us? We think, we think that God hates the people we hate. God justifies our own racism, our own laziness, our own disobedience. And that's where God rebukes us. And he goes, you think that I'm one like you? No. Now I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God does not delight in the death of anyone, as the book of Ezekiel clearly says. That's why he says, turn from your sins and live. That's where it comes down to, who do you say that I am? This is your turning point. Here are three action points that I want us to take away from this text as we finish this off. And Jesus has rebuked Peter because Peter was trying to have salvation without suffering. There's our three action points that I want us to take home. The first one is this, be patient in your sanctification. And here's what I mean by that. We are being made holy and others around us who have confessed Christ are being made holy. Don't think, don't think that you can microwave godliness. It's not like a bag of popcorn that pops immediately in three minutes or less. Sanctification takes time. I've met other people, and I, under, I know you have too, where they cite the reason for not believing in Jesus because of the hypocrisy of some Christian. They say, if that person's a Christian, I don't want to be one. You ever heard that? I hear that all the time. All the time. And then I have a couple responses. Number one, I say, can you imagine what that person would have been like without Jesus, first of all? I mean, you're looking at him now. You should have seen him before. You know, that's number one. And number two, don't let the patient keep you from the physician. 
Don't let those in the emergency room keep, your, keep you away from seeing the physician yourself. Because you know what? The emergency room, I don't know if you've ever been in one, it's filled with sick people. And we all have the disease of sin, and we're all going to screw up. It's not an excuse. I'm just saying it's the reality. But that doesn't change the fact that the physician can heal their disease of sin. Well, that's what we need to make sure, that people can get to the physician, not keep interacting with the patients. So be patient in your sanctification. Also, be correct in your proclamation. What are you calling your friends and family to believe about Jesus? Can you outline the gospel in a minute or less? Can you do it? Think about it. You're like, sure I can. Go ahead. Think about it. Can you, are you correct? What are you calling people to? I meet Christians, and I've done this myself, I have to confess, that I was calling people to their best life now. It'll make you a healthier life. It'll be a better life for you. As if I'm trying to sell them something. I'm not trying to sell them anything. I'm trying to show them that Jesus is the Savior, and also the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Jesus is coming again. We, talk, we sang about that today. Jesus is coming again. We don't think he is for some reason. We talk about it, but we don't really believe he is. But he's coming. He is coming. And we have to call people to repentance that man is rebellious. God, in his love, provided a substitute for us that took the wrath of God upon himself and our sins, paid the price for it, died, was buried, and rose again, ascended into heaven where he waits to come again to judge the quick and the dead. And he is commanding all men now to repent, as the book of Acts says. So make sure that you are correct in what you're calling people to do. Peter didn't understand the suffering. Don't try to make people think that suffering is not going to occur in their life. Their life might be better, yes, but they could still undergo hardship. Who would, who would look at Job's life and offer that up as an example for people on accepting Christ? By the way, if you accept Jesus, this is what your life could be like. You know, we don't do that. We always try to give this pie-in-the-sky answer. Just like I had a young girl who was going on a mission trip to Thailand when I was a youth pastor. She was a senior in high school. Her parents were freaked out that she was going to Thailand on her own, and we're driving on the airport. I think I've shared this story before. We're driving her to the airport, my wife and myself, and my wife goes, God's going to protect you. And I went, maybe not. God might want you to die for his glory. Something to say to a 17-year-old kid getting ready to go on a mission trip. I said, I have to be theologically correct here. God might want you to glorify himself with suffering. And she's like, thanks for that encouragement. <laughs> I'm like, that's what I'm here for. I'm not here to gloss it over and make it all more palatable for you. I want to show you the truth of the, re the reality of the situation. So make sure that we're being correct in our proclamation. And lastly, make sure that we're being mindful of his direction. Mindful of his direction. In other words, when Jesus calls us to obey, obey. It may not make sense, but there's a reason for it. And you have to trust God just like we expect our children to trust us. We have to trust God in the same way. That's why we're to have childlike faith. That doesn't mean that we don't try to understand. We should have that, that, that faith that's seeking understanding, yes, but we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just like I was talking to these two men, uh, and they both said, you know, I want, I want proof, I want evidence. I'm like, the proof has already been written. Now it comes down to faith. With faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who want to please God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who earnestly seek Him, Hebrews 11, 6. 
So do we have faith? Do we believe in him? Now, we're going to transition right now into our communion time. And I, I'd like you to flip back for a moment to think about this. As we've been talking about turning points, this is where our, a turning point involves confession and repentance. We can't follow Jesus without repenting of our sins. It's like salvation's like a bus. You come with a bus because you've got this unbearable burden that won't fit through the door. If you want to get on board with Jesus, you can't